If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Psalm chapter 16 this morning. Psalm 16, the Psalms are, it's kind of in the middle of your Bible if you got one. Um, and if you don't, we've got some black Bibles nearby. Uh, it'll be page 453. If you want to grab one of those Bibles to follow along with us. In Psalm 16, it's page 453 in the Black Bibles, and if you don't have one of your own, you're, you're welcome to keep that. We have plenty of those. We have been learning from the Psalms this year, and so we wanted to uh, think about the resurrection of Christ here on Easter, on Resurrection Sunday, through the lens of the Psalms. The Psalms actually, in some places, foresee this resurrection that hadn't happened yet. And so this is one of those places in the Psalms where King David looked forward and said, God's going to fulfill the promise he made to me that there would be a greater king that would come, that would be one of my descendants. We talk a lot in the scripture about how that promise goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for their sin. They're told that a son would come someday, a human would be born, a son of Eve someday in the future that would crush evil, that would crush the serpent. Promises are made to Abraham. Abraham's a famous character in the book of Genesis He's told that he would have descendants that would bless the whole world, and specifically one descendant, Paul tells us, who is Christ. And so we see all these prophecies in the Old Testament looking forward to this day that would come that death would be broken, that sin would be broken, that the pain that we all live under would be broken. One of the things we've learned in the Psalms is that the Scripture actually challenges us to be real about the difficulty of life to take that and to bring that into our prayer life with God. Our honest emotions, the pains that we feel, the frustrations that we feel, to bring that into collision with who God is, to speak his word back to him, to listen to what he has to say. And that's a model that we've seen again and again in the book of Psalms. It's a prayer book, it's a worship book, it's a book that shows us what true spirituality looks like. This tension between both uh, absolute authenticity and absolute truth. We believe that God is real and he is true and he is good. And so we see that again played out here today in Psalm 16. The name of the psalm or the name of the sermon today is death is broken. As we celebrate the resurrection, as we think about Jesus conquering death, we're thinking about the idea that death has finally been defeated for us. So we have reason to be rejoicing. Yes, we live in a world still of death and brokenness, But Jesus conquered death, so we have hope that we can also someday conquer death. So we'll read from Psalm 16, and what I want to do is kind of work backwards. I'm going to read the last few verses first. Is that okay with everybody? All right. We're going to read the last few verses first, and then we'll get to the other verses as we move through the morning. So look at verse 9. This is the promise. This is the prophecy. This is where David looks forward and says, another one's coming, one that's going to fill my shoes, one that's going to wear my crown, that's going to be the perfect king. He says in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. It's the place of the dead. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So David speaks in the voice of his son. King David speaks with the voice of his son and says, you're not going to let me decay. You're not going to let me rot in the ground. And years later, after the resurrection of Christ, the apostle Peter stands up to a crowd and says, this is not about David because he decayed in the ground. This is about Jesus because he rose from the grave. The apostle Paul in the same way in Acts chapter 13 says, this is not about King David. King David 
rotted in the ground. But the greater king, Jesus, has risen from the grave. Christianity, we stake our entire life on the resurrection. If the resurrection isn't true, we're all participating in a bizarre and strange hobby here this morning. But we believe it's true, and that's why we're here. So we invite you to consider the possibility that Jesus defeated death once and for all. That this isn't just a mythical idea, but this is the truth. That this changes everything. The New Testament speaks of the world we live in in this way. It says we live in the last days. And the New Testament was written in the first century. They're not just talking about because, you know, the geopolitical system is so crazy now in the 21st century. They're saying we live in the last days because Jesus has defeated death. And that's our hope. That's why we gather this morning. I'm going to pray and ask God to teach us, to give us some hope this morning, and then we'll look at the rest of the verses. God, we pray that you would teach us. We thank you that Jesus defeated death. And God, you know some of us are here in hope and in joy because of that reality, and you know some of us are here uh, thinking that's not the world we see. Some of us are here questioning, trying to understand where we can find hope because there seems to be so much hopelessness in this world of death and brokenness. So God, we pray that you would show us that death has been broken by you, by your son, Jesus. We pray that your spirit would speak to us, would open our minds. God, help us to consider. Help us to have open minds. Help us to have open hearts. We pray that your spirit would teach us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever had a close call with death and then you kept souvenirs maybe from it to, to remember how you cheated death. Has that ever happened? Anybody here? Raise your hand if you've had that kind of situation. Maybe you kept that piece of a bumper from the bad car wreck or something. Or uh, maybe you kept, I was with a guy the other day in his office and he had a big hunk of artillery shell, right? Because it had just whizzed by his head. He had cheated death. And he was keeping that as a, as a memory that God had saved him, God had preserved him. I have one of those kind of tokens myself from a situation in our, our family. Um, this is called knob and tube wiring. Have you all ever seen this? A, a little ceramic uh, tube that you would wrap the wire around and then you nail it into a board in your attic. But apparently after 75 years, this is not very reliable. And so this caught fire in our house, and here's some of the charred pieces of wood. And thankfully, God preserved us. God used our local friendly firemen to save us. And he preserved us, and we cheated death, just like many of you have in situations like that. The fire didn't spread more than six or eight feet in one spot in the attic. So God saved us. We cheated death. I remember being in a car wreck where I was spun around about, it seemed like a thousand times. It was probably just four or five. I was hit by an 18-wheeler, and I was driving a small Honda, which is not a good matchup, right? And I walked out, not even a scratch, and I thought, wow, God has, God has saved me. God has preserved me. Maybe he has a purpose for me. I don't know if you've had that kind of experience where you survived something. Maybe it was a disease. Maybe it was physically a close call. God is trying to show us that he has a purpose for us. And what the scriptures tell us is that in all these things where we've been preserved, uh, they remind us and point forward to a, a greater salvation. Those are all temporary salvations, right? There's a greater salvation that Jesus purchased for us through his death and burial and resurrection. Another lens to think about it is, is this way. Jesus healed a lot of people when he was on the earth, right? Some of you have read the stories in the New Testament. Jesus healed people. Jesus would heal someone from a terrible disease, and then what would happen to that person 50 years later? They died. Uh, you may not know the rest of the story. That, that's what happens to people, right? 
That's the world we live in, right? I know you came here for good news, but we've got to start with the bad news. We, we might be saved. I was saved from a fire. I was saved from a car wreck. I, I, I'm going to die someday, though. I'm going to die someday, and the resurrection is my hope beyond death. The resurrection of Jesus is my hope beyond death. The promise of the Scripture is that death is broken, and so we should live in a different way. In this world of death and brokenness, we should live differently because death is broken for us by Christ. The first thing that the psalmist tells us is to focus on the exclusive claims of the God of the Bible, that he is really the only God that could do this kind of thing. There's only one God that can protect us. There are all these other gods, other powers that we run to in this world, but there's only one death-breaking God that we should look to. Only one that can really preserve us. Only one that can really be a refuge. We've seen this theme again and again in the Psalms, that God's our shelter, God is our refuge, so we should run to him. We should see him as our protection. And that's what we see again in this psalm, in Psalm chapter 16. So if you look at verse 1, we'll start back at the beginning. Psalm 16, verse 1 says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The faith of the Old Testament and the New Testament demands a kind of exclusiveness that says there's only one real power in this world. There's only one real God. Throughout the scripture, there's references to other gods. There, yeah, there are other gods. Yeah, there are other powers. But compared to God, they're nothing. He's the real God. He's the real power. He's the real refuge. There's other refuges we'll run to. I'm glad the fire department was there to take care of me. And I'm sure you might have had a close call and you were glad your body armor was there to protect you or your seat belt was there to protect you or the medicine was there uh, to cure your disease. And those refuges are, are gifts. But there's only one real refuge. There's only one eternal refuge. There's only one permanent refuge. There's only one God. Only one real God. And that's again and again the promise of the Scriptures. That there's one God to run to. There's only one God that can break death for us. And so he says, preserve me. He goes to that God, he asks for help. He prays to him, he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you're my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Here he's talking about those who follow God. And this is a little hard for us to hear, uh, this positive language about saints, uh, for most of us, because in our culture, we, we listen to a constant barrage where we're being told uh, how bad the saints are, how bad the church is, how bad believers are, how bad followers of God are. And I want to start by saying, you know what, Look, before we get defensive as, as Christian people about the posture that the culture has towards us, let's admit that we give them good ammunition every day. We give them good ammunition every day. And so when people say the church is full of hypocrites, we should say, yeah, I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah, that's the problem. That's why we're gathered here today, not because we think we're not hypocrites, but because we are hypocrites. We need salvation. Outside of ourselves, we can't save ourselves. And so the psalmist is speaking in that light. His delight in the saints is he's delighting in those who look to the real God to save them. He's not delighting in hypocrisy. He's not delighting in sin. He's not delighting in rebellion or hatred. He's delighting in trust. He's delighting in those that trust in the real God. And we see this contrast in the next verse. It sets up that there are others that run after other gods. 
So again, it's, it's not about the people themselves, the strength within them, those that follow God or don't follow God. It's about the God. It's a, it's a contest of gods here. Who are the real gods? Who are the gods we're going to follow? Who are the gods that can actually save? So look at it in verse 4. He says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He's saying, I'm not going to run after those gods. I'm committing to remain faithful to the real God, to the true God, to the one God that made all things, that is good, that is generous. He's saying at the beginning, you're my Lord, you're my God, you're my refuge, you're my protection. I'm not going to run after these other gods. Now, it's easy for us as modern people to think, well, I'm, I'm one of these in, intelligent modern people, right? I don't, I don't worship these funny statues that I have seen in my history books or these funny statues I've, I've seen in an archaeological magazine or in National Geographic, right? Um, not many of you, and you don't have to hold your hand if you do, but most of us don't have the little statues on our mantle that we bow down to and worship. I mean, maybe some of you do, but most of us don't. That's not, it's not common in our culture, is it? And what I want you to see is that uh, a God is any power that you run to. A God is any power that you pour your life out to. So this verse sounds culturally very distant. You know, other gods people are running to, naming their name and pouring out blood offerings. Again, I don't think many of you are out there pouring out blood offerings to golden statues. I I just don't see that happening a lot in our culture. But I do see many of us, myself included, pouring out our life to lesser powers in this world pouring out our life to those things that we think are going to be a refuge, whether it be the security we find in relationships, the security we find in the respect that we might get from a new position or a new place at work, pouring out our lives to relationship after relationship after relationship, money, education. What are the things that you pour out your life to? The next big project? The Bible says those are God's. Any power that you trust in to save you, to make you whole, to make the pain go away, to make everything better, that's a God. That's a God. And the Bible says that there are other gods. There are other gods that we run to, that we name, but they're not real gods. They're not, they're not really going to save you. They might save you temporarily. They might make things better for a little while. They might make you feel better. But it's not the eternal breaking of death that we need that only God can offer us. So that's what the scripture challenges us to here. I have a picture of some little golden gods, some little golden statues. Like I said, this is what we often think of. And I purposely found a picture where you see a whole shelf full of the same one, right? It kind of uh, demystifies the uh, exclusivity of, of whatever god someone might worship when you realize, I'm just like everybody else. It's a factory. They're just, they're just pumping these things out, right? When you give in to a lesser God, a lesser power in this world, when you're distracted from serving the God of the universe and you're going to the bottle or you're going to relationships, you're just buying the God off the factory that a thousand people before you bought off the shelf right before you did. It's an idle factory. The world is an idle factory. John Calvin says our own hearts are idle factories. We just pump them out. We're always making new gods. We're always making new things to worship, to put our hope in, to put our trust in, to lean our weight into. But the psalmist starts off here by saying, there's only one. There's only one. I'm going to make you my Lord. I'm going to make you my God. Paul talks in Philippians about trusting in the resurrection power of Jesus. 
He talks about trusting in the resurrection power of Jesus. And Paul goes so far to say that his excellent religious life, he now considers to be rubbish, muck, trash, compared to the resurrection power of Jesus, compared to the great worth of Jesus giving himself for Paul. So what I want to challenge you with this morning is there are many other gods we can follow. There are many other powers that we can trust in. One of those is even religion. It's even doing good things, being clean cut, looking right, saying the right thing, always having the right answer. Paul says, I did that. Paul says, I did that better than anybody. But now after meeting Christ, I consider it all trash. I consider it all worthless compared to the beauty, compared to the glory of Christ and his resurrection power. That's the only power that I trust in now. And because of that, then Paul is willing to follow in Jesus' footsteps. He says, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul is saying, I want to lock arm with the sufferings of Jesus. I want to walk stride and stride with the sufferings of Jesus. Only resurrection power can do that. None of these other lesser gods that we worship can make our hearts want to sacrifice for other people. None of these other gods can make us want to give ourselves in love to others. Only the God of the Bible can do that. Well, the next thing that we see is that this then, this changes our posture in life. There's one death-breaking posture then that we have. What's your posture before God? If this is true about him, if this is who God is, if the lesser gods of this world can't really save us, then how does that affect our posture? How does it affect the way that we position ourselves before God? And he says it this way in verse 5. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. So I want you to see that all of these verses describe a posture that you can have before God. A posture where you see him as your treasure above all things. A posture where you focus on what he has to say, where you listen to his counsel, where you allow him to instruct you, as it says in verse 7. He says it this way in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. And what I want you to hear from the verbs there is that this is not, I've set him before me like I control God and I, I put him on my shelf, right? We might be thinking still about these gods that we control, that we offer sacrifices to, that we want to control our life and we control them and This is a different situation. When he says, I have set him before me, this is like focusing on, like like I'm staring at him, like he is the only thing that I see right now. That's what the verb in Hebrew means. Even the the Greek translation of this that they often quote in the New Testament uses visually, I'm looking at him, I'm gazing at him. So I have a picture here to maybe illustrate the point. Any of you all ever been to a wedding before? Anybody here? Raise your hand if you've been to a wedding. Okay, a few of you. You might have seen this. Okay, here's a couple staring into each other's eyes. Have you ever seen that? Like sometimes it's beautiful and it makes you cry. Sometimes it's a little too much and it grosses you out. But in general, it's, it's appropriate, right? When a wedding is taking place, a man and a woman are saying, I see you as my inheritance. I see you as my lot, as my portion, as a gift. I see you as, as the one that I love. I see you as, as this wonderful present. That, that's the 
That's the posture that we should have as we set God before us. That this focus, just like the psalmist is talking about. He's saying, you're, you're good. You're, you're a gift. He says it here, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. All these words talking about inheritance language, you might not have any hope of a real inheritance from your parents. I don't know if, you know, you may not be looking forward to getting a million dollars from your parents, but he's saying that's the posture that they have before God is that he sees God himself as this wealthy, rich treasure, as this inheritance he's going to be given, as this portion, as his lot, as the lines have fallen out in good places. This is like inheriting land. And he's saying, I'm surveying my property and it's, it's good and it's God himself. So the question is, do you, do you see God in that way? Do you see God as a generous treasure? Or do you see him as holding out on you? In James, the New Testament letter of James, he says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Everything good comes from his hand. He's, he's generous. He's a gift-giving God. And that, that posture affects everything. So, so what I want you to see is that if you have that posture, that posture of seeing God as generous, that, that posture of seeing God as one who gives good gifts to you, then that will affect the way you live out your life. Think about it through this lens. Many of us think of the Christian faith in one of two ways. We either think of the Christian faith as our posture before God, like I've been talking about, focusing on Him, seeing his, Him as a gift-giving God, as generous, worship, focus, devotion, or you might think about the faith as things that you do for God, right? The New Testament and the Old Testament weaves these things together, knits these two things together, and says they're inseparable. What it says is if, if you see God as generous, but you're not generous, you don't really see God as generous, right? So, so the question to ask ourselves is, do, do we love people? Are we kind? Are we generous? And the scripture says the root of that is how you see God himself. If you don't see him as, as generous and as good and as gracious, then we're not going to be good and generous and gracious. So when culture accuses us of not loving, of not being generous, again, we need to say, yeah, no, you're right. My God's not that way, though. My God is good. And the more that we gaze at him, the more that we focus on him, the more that we, as the text says, set him ever before us, then it gives us this unshakableness, right? Look at verse 8 again. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Because God's with me, I can live my life with reckless abandon. I can be generous. I can give my time to people, even though, I, you know what, I don't really have time. But you know what? God gave his time to me, so I can, I can give my time to people. I can give my money. I can share the resources I have to help others, to honor God. I may, some days I may not feel like I've got enough, right? But when I see the inheritance that God's given me, I feel like I'm overflowing. Why, why can't I share? See, it's the difference between seeing yourself as a son or daughter of the king who has everything you need and you're taken care of. Even death itself has been defeated for you. So you can burn up this life and live with reckless abandon. Or you see yourself as, as an orphan, as someone that's all on your own. You're not being taken care of. You need to fight and scrap and take what you can while you can to get ahead. Those are two different postures. 
As I said already, the, the posture of how you look at God, how you see Him, what you believe about Him in your heart, whether He's generous or not, whether He's good or not, whether the inheritance of God Himself is a blessing or not, that, that then affects the way you treat other people. So my prayer for us is that we would have a, a renewed vision of who God is, that we would more and more be challenged when we look at the Scriptures, that we wouldn't think of it as just abstract information, but that we would see this reveals to me who God is. It tells me the story about a God who loves me, a God who promised to Adam and Eve when he had been betrayed in the garden, it's okay, you're going you're to have a son that's going to fix this. It's a God that comes to Abraham and says, you know what? You're going to have children that are going to bless the whole world. It's a God that comes to David and says, a, a king is going to de- descend from your line that's going to beat this once and for all. Take care of this problem, the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem that is what helps us to fix every other problem. World hunger and education and politics and all these other problems, those are real problems. But human beings can only live generously and work on those secondary problems if, if we know that the problem of sin and death has been taken care of. And that's, that's the promise of the gospel. That God has defeated death for us. And so that brings us to the final the final few verses where we see that there's only one death-breaking hero. The story of the scripture is that we're not the hero, but God is the hero. But there's this tension in the Old Testament. As I just said, again and again, these covenant promises are made where God says, yeah, you're not getting it right. Yeah, you, you've messed up, but I'm, I'm going to be gracious again. And someday there's, there's going to be a descendant. There's going to be a person, a human, that's going to clean up this mess. That's a tension that we have that can only be resolved by Jesus himself, who is both fully God and fully man. This descendant of Eve, this descendant of Noah, this descendant of Abraham, this descendant of King David that comes and is perfect. He's fully human, but he's also fully God. He lives the life we should have lived. He's the new Adam and Eve. He's the new Israelite. He's the new humanity. He lives the life we were supposed to live. And he dies a sacrificial death in our place. And he doesn't stay dead. Death cannot keep him. The scriptures tell tell us he's raised by the power of an indestructible life. And so we see this starting in verse 9. Again, David is speaking as his son. David's speaking prophetically here. You see this repeatedly throughout the Psalms where David speaks as if it's himself, but it only makes sense when fulfilled by Jesus. He says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption, decay, rot. I found a picture to illustrate this. This is difficult because you, know, you have to balance this out with a friendly congregation like you guys. I don't want to gross you out too much, right? So I got a picture here of worms in the dirt. I wanted it to be gross, but not too gross, okay? So is that, how did I do? Is that moderately gross? Um, this is the way of all mankind. This is where we're headed, right? This is our future, to, to be dirt, to be worm food. That, that's, where, that's where we're headed. I know, I'm sorry to give you the bad news. It's shocking, I know. But death is our future. And so our hope is that Jesus has broken death. He's defeated death. He's conquered 
death. Again and again in the New Testament, the apostles would say, you know how we know he's that one? You know how we know he's that Messiah? You know how we know he's that king? Because he defeated death. Because he rose from the grave. And there's, there's great books you can read on the subject. If you're someone who has questions about this, I'd love to talk to you about this. When I became a follower of Christ, I fell in love with who Christ was. I put my faith in him. But then I still had real doubts about all these other things. Like, well, how can someone rise from the dead? And how do I know I can trust the Bible? And how do I know that this all makes sense? And I had real questions and uh, for years studied these things. I'd, I'd love to talk to you more about that in person. There's, there's all kinds of great evidence that shows that we can, we can trust these stories. I mean, just a couple that are helpful, I think. One is the guys that talked about Jesus rising from the dead, they died for that story. These were poor men that could have gone on and lived a happy life, but they were killed for this story. Another great evidence is the first witnesses were women. And in the first century, women were not considered valid uh, witnesses in court. No offense to you ladies. I agree it was wrong, okay? But in the first century, they, women were not considered valid witnesses. But for some reason, these apostles, these disciples, hold them up as the first witnesses. It's almost as if they cared more about the truth of the story than about making the story believable. And they said, we're just going to tell this story. It's too good to not be true. So those are just a couple of evidences, but books are filled with these kind of evidences that show we can trust this book, we can trust this story. But more than that, I would point to the reality that all, all stories... All the, all the best stories point to a, to a tension that only Jesus fulfills. All the prophecies of this book in particular, but all the best stories in the world point to this, this dual reality that human beings are both glorious and also broken. That God is both just to, and terrifying, but also merciful. Only Jesus makes sense of those realities. And so we see this Uh, lived out in the story of Jesus, and it's promised in verse 10, you won't abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, and you won't let your Holy One see corruption. So when the Apostle Peter stands up and speaks to the people of Israel, he says, this is not about David, because David is rotting in the grave. This is not about David, because he is worm food now. This is about Jesus. Jesus rose from the grave. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. The Apostle Paul says this can't be about King David. This has got to be about Jesus because only Jesus rose from the grave. And when Peter is speaking to people there in Acts chapter 2, people are convicted that they've got to respond. They've got to live differently because death is broken. There's got to be some kind of turn, some kind of change in their life. And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. It's, a, it's an old-fashioned response to the story. Repentance means to turn from trusting in your own gods and your own power and to trust in Him. Baptism is a way that Christians mark themselves as members of this covenant community. They say, I'm all in with Jesus. I belong to Him. He's my hope. Baptism is a double symbol of both washing. It's also a symbol of death and rebirth, resurrection. And so by turning and trusting in Jesus, by marking yourself as a follower of him, you show the world that you're not trusting in those other gods anymore, but you're trusting in Jesus. I'd encourage you, if you've never turned from those other powers, to turn to him, to trust God, to trust Jesus, 
the payment that he offers on the cross to take your place and to give you his righteousness. If you're a follower of Christ and you've never obeyed him by being baptized, by showing yourself to the world as one that belongs to him, I encourage you to do that. We'll have a baptism in a couple of weeks here at the church. But Peter says, trust him. Trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. Follow him. Believe in him. And that's still the challenge that we have today. I want to close with the Apostle Paul's language about this. So as I said, both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul both point to this psalm. They both use this psalm, right? They're out preaching to people, sharing the good news of the resurrection. And they're pointing to this psalm and they're saying, this psalm can only be true because Jesus has risen from the dead. And the Apostle Paul says it this way in Acts chapter 13. He says, He says in a psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He rotted in the ground. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Again, there's... There's, there's double payment there. There's forgiveness of sin. So if you're here this morning and you're like, I've done too much, God can't take me now. No, there's forgiveness of sins. Big sins, small sins, fat sins, skinny sins, tall sins, short sins, all, all sins. He, he forgives us of our sins. There's nothing beyond his reach. Don't, don't boast in how awesome a sinner you are and think, I'm such a great sinner, God can't forgive me. No, even, even you. God can forgive you. That's why Jesus died. We insult the cross when we say that our sin is beyond the reach of Jesus. And then Paul adds this interesting twist that Paul's often throwing in through the New Testament where he says not only is it forgiveness of sins, but he says everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So some of you are great sinners, you need to know that you're not beyond the reach of Jesus. Some of you are really religious, and you need to know that you don't have the power to save yourself. Your religion is not enough. Paul says the law of Moses is not enough. Paul said, I was better than anybody, and it wasn't enough. So whether you're religious or you're rebellious, whether you're running the other direction from God, or you're avoiding him by saving yourself, by being so religious, he says, All of us, all of us are the same. All of humanity are in the same boat. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need to trust in the resurrection power of this Jesus who has risen from the dead. He is risen. Christ is risen. Amen. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing one final song together. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you gave us Jesus who conquered death once and for all. We thank you that you showed your love to us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see this as beautiful, as a wonderful inheritance that you've given to us, that you would help us to to posture ourselves with the eyes of faith, to to look at you and you only, to, to dwell on what you've given us, to look at the picture you've painted in your word, not as abstract truths we're learning to pass a test, but a beautiful picture of your love for us. God, we pray that that would then transform our posture 
as we relate to others, that we would be generous, that we would be kind, that we would give our, our time, ourselves, our talent, our treasure, everything for you and your glory. Help us to love God and love others in that way, Father. We thank you that death is broken. We thank you that Jesus is alive. We pray that you would help us to live differently in this world because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.